Well, it's a joy to have Stephen here with us, leading uh, every once in a while. We try to give Jenny a break, <laughs> an opportunity to rest and to recoup. And we have gifted leaders at various of our campuses. And Stephen usually attends our Olathe campus. And he was willing to come down. And it's just such a joy. So thank you, Stephen, for leading us in a time of singing and reflection before we dive into God's word. Well, when I was a boy in Mississippi, uh, I was always getting into trouble, you know. And I always had uh, some sort of Band-Aid or some sort of uh, stitches or bruise from my latest adventure to prove it. And uh, we lived in this 19th century home. Here's a picture. My sister actually posted it on Facebook the other day. It's, this, it's kind of harder to see because of the lighting. But this old 19th century home in a small town called Hernando, Mississippi. And it had these huge wooden stairs. Uh, my sisters and I, we would race up and down them, see who could beat the other person. And then in the background, you would always hear my mom yelling this warning. Don't run down the stairs or you're going to fall and break your neck. You know, As moms do, they're looking out for our good. So I, I don't know how many times we heard this warning. Well, sure enough, after countless times of successfully avoiding the outcome of that warning, uh, I was running down the stairs and my shoe happened to catch on a nail. It was probably a millimeter up. I mean, it slowly wiggled its way loose in these old, uh, this, this old wood in the stairs. And I began to fly down. And I hit our wooden floor at the bottom, chin first, like four or five steps up. Instantly, red was everywhere. I mean, as you can imagine, I had to hold a few dish rags just to contain everything because it was flowing so badly. So this is a pretty graphic image, right? <laughs> well, we, we get to the ER. We get to the ER, and I remember being placed on the table, and the doctor says, you know, we'll have, to, we'll, we'll have you stitched up in no time. We just got to put a couple shots in there to numb the pain, and then we can get the stitches. And with seven-year-old wisdom, I began wiggling loose, and I said, no, no, I think we'll be fine. It'll heal okay on its own. So I began to try to wiggle loose. I hated shots as a kid. I mean, a lot of us as children and still as adults hate shots. And so I began to try to wiggle loose. They had to bring over a couple nurses to hold me down. And he gave me those shots, and after the shots, it was quickly over. Um, and the doctor, he, he gave me a sucker, and he lied to my face. And he said, this is, this is for being a good little patient, you know? And I knew he was lying, but I didn't care. I just wanted the sucker, so I took it. And, and when we got home, there was still a little bit of blood on the, on the floor because we'd ran out in such a hurry. And as I was wiping it up, I remember thinking, and I'm sure my mom told me, uh, that's why you listen to your mother. When you, and you don't run down the steps. And if I ever forget, um, I actually have these scars on the bottom of my chin where the hair doesn't grow in because of falling down the steps. They always remind me what happens when I ignore solid warnings. And as I was thinking about this story and thinking about our text this morning, I asked the question, why do we ignore warnings? And I think there's two good reasons. One, we either just don't believe that the warning is true or at the very least, we think we can get away with it, right? We don't think it's going to ring true for me. Maybe for other people, but not for me. I don't know how many times I'd run down those steps, and I would slowly, well, fast, very fast, continue to try to increase speed to beat my last time, right? If I jumped off of two steps and landed safely, the next time I was going to jump off of three and try to land safely. Until, of course, that fatal day when I busted my chin wide open. And it's this sort of mindset in our spiritual lives. This total disregard for God's warnings 
It's one of the most dangerous places that we can be in our life. Now, if, if we were to look at a, 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 a poison bottle, we'd see this warning label on the back. It's trying to grab our attention. Well, the same way our text this morning, this story that God has given us, is trying to grab our attention. And it's got two cautionary lessons it's trying to teach us. First, do not ignore God's warning. And secondly, do not ignore God's judgment. Because if we do, we'll miss God's rescue. That's the kicker. Don't, don't, miss, don't ignore God's warning and don't ignore God's judgment. Because if you do, you're going to miss his rescue. Well, as we, if we were to look back, about, look back through where we've been in the story of Scripture throughout this year, we've been journeying through Open Here. You saw a video at the beginning. We normally show these videos that kind of give us a preview of what we'll be reading this upcoming week. I was thinking about the storyline of Scripture, and in many ways, I can't help but notice that it's a history of God's protection and warning of His people from the dangers and toils of life. So if we go back to Genesis... God, he makes this good and this beautiful garden and he makes the first man and woman, Adam and Eve, and he places them in the garden to live and flourish with him forever. But he gives one warning, doesn't he? What is it? There's one tree in the garden. Don't eat of it. It's not good for you because if you eat of it, you're going to die. Well, Adam and Eve, they don't listen to God's warning. Instead, they eat of the fruit. And by ignoring God's word, Adam and Eve fall And they grab the rest of the world and they bring them down into pain with them. Even to today, we feel those same effects. Well, if we jump centuries later within the timeline of history of how God's working in his people, we see that God formed a nation for himself and he calls it Israel. And he delivers her from slavery out of Egypt. And God reveals the law and he commands Israel to keep the law. Because it's for her good. And throughout the books of Exodus and Deuteronomy, he gives all of these warnings, doesn't he? He says, if you ignore these commands, you will destroy this community and you're going to ruin your life. But that's not all. Even the land he's giving them, it comes with a warning. They're going into this land that's been promised to them, but it comes with a warning just like the Garden of Eden. God was warning that their disobedience to his commands would lead to exile. They'd get kicked out. If they ignore God, if they abandon their redeeming God, the one who brought them out of slavery, then a foreign invading nation will come in, grab them, take them and disperse them throughout the world and make them slaves. Well, if you go further and we're just traveling through the history here and seeing how all these warnings are working out. If you go further in the history of Israel, as she enters the promised land, we see over and over again, she ignores God's warnings. Time And time again, every once in a while, we get a good leader, you know, who listens to God. For example, we've got Joshua, we've got Samuel, you've got King David. But mostly, we see kings who just utterly disregard the warnings and they push the nation faster and faster down the steps of destruction. Well, finally, we get to where we are today in the storyline. Things got so bad that the kingdom of Israel splits in two. Israel to the north and Judah to the south. And to kind of give us a picture here, we've got a a diagram. You have Abraham, Moses, David, these key markers in the historical trajectory of God's people. And then this schism with the northern kingdom, Israel, and the southern kingdom, 
Judah. And this was even supposed to be a warning to God's people. Look, you guys even can't get along. This is something is not right if you're continually dividing and dissentious amongst yourselves. Well, then the unimaginable happens. And both Israel and Judah are kicked out of the very land that God had promised them. First, you see Israel is exiled to Assyria by the superpower at 722. And then you see the exile to Babylon of Judah, the southern kingdom, in 586. And our, to- and our story this morning, our text, it gives us the explanation why all of this great potential, the story of a kingdom and a, and a people who were supposed to be a shining light to the rest of the world, slowly breaks apart and becomes a warning to the rest of the world. Let's look again at verse 7 together. That's in your welcome folder. And it begins with, and this occurred. And this occurred because, this is the key word for why, the people of Israel had sinned against the Lord their God, who had brought them up out of the land of Egypt from under the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. And they had feared other gods. And walked in the customs of the nations whom the Lord drove out before the people of Israel, and in the customs that the kings of Israel had practiced. And the people of Israel did secretly against their Lord their God, things that were not right. They built for themselves high places in all their towns from watchtower to fortified city. They set up for themselves pillars and asherim, which are these types of pillars worshiping foreign gods, on every high hill and under every green tree. And there they made offerings on all the high places, as the nations did whom the Lord carried away before them. And they did wicked things, provoking the Lord to anger. And they served idols of which the Lord had said to them, You shall not do this. He'd warned them. And yet the Lord warns again Israel and Judah by every prophet and every seer, saying, Turn from your evil ways and keep my commandments and my statutes in accordance with all the law that I commanded your fathers and that I sent to you by my servants, the prophets. But here's the key. But they would not listen, but were stubborn as their fathers had been, who did not believe in the Lord their God. We see this utterly painful picture as we just portray throughout the history of Israel. All this potential, God has spent so much initiative delivering and then interceding for this nation. And yet Israel has abandoned God. Rather than being a nation that's exclusive to Yahweh, to God, And who is supposed to be holy as he is holy, as it says in Exodus 19. Rather, they've become a nation of accommodation. Grabbing and absorbing the values, the goals, the image, and the idols of the nations surrounding them. Which driving their destination. But even here, we see God's true compassion for his people. As he warns, and he warns, and he warns. He sends countless prophets to Israel and Judah saying, hey, cut this out. Are you going to be cut out of the land? You're destroying yourselves. But they won't listen. Rather, as we see in verse 15, they despised his statutes and his covenant that he made with their fathers and the warnings that he gave them. They went after false idols and became false. If we can pause here for a moment, this word false, I mean, when we look at it, we just instantly think the opposite of true. But really, this is an explosive and a rare term throughout the rest of the story of Scripture. It carries the idea of worthlessness. It carries the idea of emptiness or vainness. If you look in the book of Ecclesiastes, 
frequently, the writer of Ecclesiastes says, all of life, if there is no God, is vanity. It's the same idea. It's empty. It's worthless. It's absurd. If there is no God who is sovereign and who is good and he was wise in seeking the good of his creation. And here we see Israel's worship, these empty idols of wood and clay and precious metals, and they become just like them. They may be beautiful on the outside, but there's no life inside them. What we ultimately value, what we ultimately treasure as our top, what we give the most honor to in our lives, we take all the energy that we have and we direct it towards that object so that we might be like that object. We want to be like what we highly value. It draws all the passions within our hearts and all of God's warnings remind us that if he is not put at the center, then our lives will be empty. We will become a type of person who is empty, who is vain, who is false, down to the marrow of our bones. I mean, we ask the question when we come to Israel, and we do this many times as we go through the story of Scripture. We say, how could they do this, though, right? I mean, they've seen so many miraculous things that God has done. The attractive thing about idols is that they work at first. We had this conference um, CG 2013, Common Good 2013. We had this wonderful speaker, Andy Crouch, who's a great biblical uh, interpreter of of, of Scripture and and guiding of the church uh, across the nation. And he helped us understand understand the, the, the concept of idols. He says they work at first, but the effects slowly dwindle. If you make your work, your looks, your status, or even your spouse the ultimate marker for your decisions... Yeah, they're going to deliver at first because they're meant to be enjoyable in our lives. They're good things. They're not bad things. But they'll never sustain your fulfillment. They're always going to be longing for more. And you're always going to be empty. You're going to feel that sense of falseness as hard as you try to fight against it. And idols, they make these extravagant promises at such a low cost. It's a deal, right? This is a great deal. You can get a lot for little. But slowly, the price increases, and what they deliver diminishes until they demand everything of who you are, and they give you nothing in return. Don't be fooled. This is a subtle battle. And in verse 9, we see this happening to Israel. Israel starts by secretly disregarding God's ways. Behind closed doors, in the recesses of their hearts, God was being displaced for another. But whenever you worship something... It will always demand your total fidelity. It demands all of you, rarely overnight, but regularly over time. It will not stay so nice and neat in this little compartment and closet of our heart, but it will demand to control the whole house of your life. You see, for Israel, it spread from the private life to the public sector, with its effects transforming the whole city as a city of injustice and idolatry. And in their desperation to fill the emptiness, they even give what is not theirs to give. In verse 17, it tells us that they sacrifice their very own children. This is the reason God hates these idols, these false gods. Because they destroy our community. They they mar what we were created to be. And what they would do is they would take their, their infants and they would heat up the idol to the point that their hands are white hot. And the, the infant would melt in the hands of this idol to appease these false gods. And this was detestable to the true God. This tore his heart apart. As the idol is destroying your life, 
They perpetuate the death that's in you and the death of those who are around you, always destroying the most vulnerable in your life, especially your children. Now, in all of this, the most dangerous part of the process is when we just stop listening, when we stop hearing the warnings of God. Why? Because without his voice ringing with warning, there's no longer a valid challenge to injustice in our lives. It's just your opinion versus my opinion. There is no ultimate voice guiding us. And, and, and it's, it's kind of like poking out your eyes so you don't see the warning signs, so you can walk off the cliff with confidence. In verse 14, you know, we get, this, we get this unreal and broken picture of Israel. It says, but they would not listen, but were stubborn. You know, in, in our culture, we use this word for stubborn frequently as like a lovable fault, right? Yeah, well, my whole family is a pretty stubborn family, and I'm a pretty stubborn person. We kind of joke and hit each other in the ribs as we were joking around. But real, really, this, this, this word, if it's literally translated, means stiff-necked. You know, it's this image of a stiff neck. And, and it comes from this common, common experience of the everyday Jewish farmer. If you go, you would see the ox was probably the most useful and common domestic animal. A plow was drawn by two oxen. And the farmer can guide the plow with one hand. But what he would have in the other hand is what's called an ox goad. It's this long pole with a sharp pointy end. And what he would do if he needed the ox to go faster is he would poke the back of the legs. Now, this probably wouldn't go well with, a P, uh, with PETA today, but he would poke the back of the legs. And then, and if you tried to steer the oxen and they wanted to go straight, you would sometimes have to poke it in the side of the neck. And then it would feel the twitch and finally give in to the guidance of the plow, of the farmer. Or if you wanted it to go straight and it was trying to meander off into the grassy fields to get a little snack, you would poke it in the back of the neck to keep it to go straight. And what they would call an ox who was very hard to control was one that was stiff-necked. He was hard of neck. It took multiple pokes and proddings of the farmer to finally get the ox to do what he's supposed to do because he was so stubborn. He wanted to go his own way, and so you would use these pokes from the ox gourd to guide and direct this stubborn ox. And so the term is used here in Scripture to express the stubborn, intractable spirit of people not responsive to the guidance of God as he's cultivating and, and growing his good world into the way it's supposed to be. I mean, we've all been there, right? It takes the body posture, usually of arms crossed. We've kind of got this glare look in our eyes. If we're a little younger, it might have a pouty face to it. And it usually comes with this unwillingness to change. This unwillingness to budge on your desires, whether it's that person that you so desperately want in your life, whether it's that position in your job that you cannot live without, or whether it's that revenge that you're not willing to let go. Stubbornness. But even if we, if we, if we don't show it in our bodies, when our hearts become stubborn, our relationships experience this rigidity. We're not a very great person to be around once stubbornness is truly lived out. It's hard to live in community with a truly stubborn person. If we look back over our lives, those times we've made those huge mistakes, I can almost guarantee every single one of us can remember voices or some sort of warnings from our friends around that would say, hey, don't do that. This isn't a good idea. And if we would have listened to the warnings, we could have saved a lot of pain and heartache. I think what's so frustrating 
about this is that we just aren't consistent in our lives. Yeah, I think about myself, what's so frustrating with me, even as I think about this, is I'm just not consistent. I mean, we pay attention to so many warnings throughout the day. For example, if you see this sign <laughs> out while you're walking around, you instantly know, okay, don't touch those wires or I'm going to end up like this guy. So you don't touch those wires. But why don't we get this spiritually? Why don't we get this in the rest of our lives? I mean, the Bible describes sin as missing the mark or looking at a warning sign and doing the opposite. It's like coming up to the sign and saying, okay, I know that's really going to hurt me, but I'm going to do it anyway. That's what sin in its essence can be defined as. Yeah, you may not feel the same physical effects right away as you would physically in a, in a particular warning sign, but we're slowly destroying ourselves inside and then leaking through all of our lives if we disregard God's warnings. I recently had a conversation with a friend of mine who was wrestling with actually whether to obey scripture or to just do what he wanted. And uh, I remember we were sitting there talking and this was his response. Well, maybe, maybe I'll just try it out for a little while. And if it doesn't satisfy me, if it doesn't bring me the pleasure and the desire that I thought it would, then I'll stop. And what my friend doesn't understand and what we many times just don't understand is that sin shapes our lives. To use Paul's language, the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 6, verse 19, sin enslaves us, dictating the direction of our life. It's, it's dynamic in its direction. It gains speed and greater intensity to the point that we're sinning even greater and greater. That's why in God's perspective, there are no little sins and no big sins. There are no little idols and big idols. Because all are setting us on a trajectory of complete destruction. You're just at a different turning point. And it gets so difficult, the longer you're in it, to turn around, to yield to his leading. So how do we fight against stubbornness and deafness to God's warnings? Well, we do it by putting ourselves daily in places where God chooses to speak, right? Two of his best avenues to navigate warnings are scripture and Christ-like community. Christ community, you know, but Christ-like community. First, if, if we, if we want to listen to God's warnings, we have to be in God's word daily. That's why we're doing this whole deal called Open Here. We're trying to help us as a community cultivate this daily discipline to be in God's word, to hear his warnings that help protect us. I mean, like a good map, scripture helps us avoid the pitfalls that are along our journey. The Apostle Paul, in one of his letters to this young guy, Timothy, as he's trying to navigate and lead a church, in chapter 3, verses 16 through 17, he says, All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. How so? I mean, if we want to get down to, to practical levels here, it gives us a good testing ground for other warnings. Right? If we've got friends that are around us who are saying, hey, Gabe, what you're doing is okay, you're fine. But then we go to scripture and we find out that scripture says what we're doing is wrong, then what we're doing is wrong. It has the ultimate voice. You may in your conscience or in your feelings may feel like something you're doing is okay. And so you tell yourself, oh, this is fine, it feels okay. But if scripture says what you're doing is wrong, then what you're doing is wrong. It has the ultimate voice even over your own feelings. 
And so we see that all good warnings align with God's word if we long to flourish in this life. And if we think first of scripture and then we go to community, you need to surround yourself with a small group of people who really know you. A group of people you can be transparent with. I mean, you need people in your life who are also centered on Jesus, who are centered on the values of scripture, that when you feel like you're okay, they can come up to you and say, hey, hey, Gabe, you're not okay. And you're not just going to ignore them and blow them off, but you've given weight to their words because they know you and you know them. You've, you've got this relational equity. This is what many times we use, what we mean when we use the word accountability. Accountability. It's, it's this, this point where people truly know us and we can be known by others. We see this across the pages of the New Testament church as they're investing in one another. Some of the best warnings in your life come from people who really know you and are trying to speak love into your life, right? I'm sure we all have stories of where that's been the case. So I ask you this morning, I want you to think about this. Who really knows you in your life? Who knows what you're looking at the internet? Who knows how you're spending your money? Who knows how you're spending your time? Who knows and what people do you have in your life that can challenge your perspectives and your decisions and you're not going to get so ticked off that you're just going to run away? What kind of relationships do you have? Do you have those people in your life? You see, if we have both of these aspects in our life, it sets us up well for repentance. This is the language we use in Scripture for repentance, which is hearing the warning and actually taking a different direction. You see it, you see the, de- the drastic effects that are before you, and you take a different trajectory. You loosen that stick ne- stiff neck and you, you, you yield to the leading of God. We do this in the rest of of life, physically. Otherwise, you wouldn't be sitting in here uh, this morning uh, listening to, to, to God's word. So be consistent and care for yourself holistically. Don't just care about your body. Care about your heart and your soul and your mind so that it does not dis- is not destroyed. Some of the most dangerous times in our lives are when warnings just no longer affect us. If you ask any doctor... If you go in and you ask a doctor, what's the most dire case? Is it the person who smokes and doesn't know that smoking is damaging them, but then you ask them to quit and you tell them about the effects? Or is the most dire case the person who's been smoking their whole life, they know it destroys their body, but keeps smoking anyway? He'll always say it's the latter. He'll always say it's the person who knows the effects, but the warnings don't mean anything to them anymore. Their, their, Their opportunity of recuperating or changing is slim to none. Well, same way as we see here with Israel. As a nation, they had cut out God's word from their life. They deafened their ears to the prophets who were proclaiming loving words into their being, and they would no longer listen to God's warnings. And so what happens? God's judgment comes. God's judgment comes. When warnings fail, God's judgment happens. And that's what we see here. Eventually, God's warnings are going to ring true with his repercussions. In our text this morning, the only thing God has left to do is judge. And if we look at verse 18, the text says, Therefore the Lord was very angry with Israel and removed them out of his sight. Which is an interesting thing because he was there the whole time, watching as they destroyed themselves. And his heart is breaking. And if you go to verse 23, it says, So Israel was exiled from their own land to Assyria until this day. 722 B.C. And what, what's also so frustrating 
is 150 years later. Judah, bookended right up against Israel, <coughs> sees their example, sees their destruction. And in 586, they have followed the exact same trajectory as Israel. And they too fall to judgment because they will not hear the warnings of God. And we see this played out in 2 Kings chapter 25 at the end of 2 Kings. You see, it's at this point in the conversation where we all tend to be a little uncomfortable because we're talking about judgment. Man, that's not a popular topic in our culture today. It's not comfy. It's not cozy. It feels harsh. It feels actually a little too intense for our sensibilities. And we frequently have a hard time reconciling God's judgment with his love, right? I thought God was a loving God. Why would he judge? Well, we also tend to think of God's judgment mainly as his ultimate judgment. And what do we mean by that? We mean that that time, that day that is coming, when all those who have chosen to disregard God, that do not want to be in his presence, do not want to honor him, choose life and eternity without him. And so God points them to what's called hell, a place where his presence, that one place in all the universe where his presence is fully not felt. They've chosen their destiny. That's what we normally think about when we think about judgment, is the ultimate judgment. But we also have to see that God exercises his judgment in our day-to-day lives. He exercises it in the day-in and the day-out stuff. Why? So that we can see the error in our ways and return to him. It's for our good. It's because he loves us. If you look at the prophet Isaiah, in chapter 26, verse 9, he says, When your judgments are in the earth, the inhabitants of the world learn righteousness. They learn how to live rightly, a way that flourishes as a community, a way that we were designed to live. And one way to think about it is is thinking of a foretaste of the judgment that is to come if you continue down the same path. You know, I've I've heard this example or this analogy um, where where they use the small, you remember the small tasting spoons whenever you go into an ice cream shop and you go in and you ask, hey, can I get a small taste of that ice cream? And you want to taste the ice cream before you invest in the whole cone, right? Because this is like five bucks and then some of us just do the taste testing because we get free ice cream. That's with your own conscience to wrestle through. But, But you get this taste test to see if you want to invest in the whole cone. Well, same way here. We get a taste of ultimate judgment when we had reject him. And God allows the punishment and the, the natural recourse to play out in our lives from, from these decisions of destruction. And then we can realize the bitter end and choose the better path because we've got this taste of judgment. Well, God, he actually shows his love for Israel by paradoxically stopping his protection of Israel and Judah. He allows their decisions to play out in their community. I mean, if they think that their false idols are actually good for their community, are going to protect them, are going to sustain them, God's going to pull back his hand and say, okay, let's see what your gods can do. And they fall and they crumble and they do not protect Israel as we see here in the history. You see, God isn't, God isn't just about causing us pain. He doesn't delight in causing us pain. He doesn't like to see us suffer. But he will allow disruption like a good parent will so that we might learn more about who he is and who we were designed to be. Sometimes these judgments may be as small as a loss in status. We feel ashamed in front of others. It may be as small as a a friendly verbal rebuke rebuke behind closed doors, or it can escalate to be bankruptcy. It It could escalate even to be a public moral failure. 
and it can be even as large as the exile of a whole nation. C.S. Lewis happens to be one of my favorite writers uh, of the 20th century, and he helps us here in his book, The Problem of Pain. As we wrestle through this problem, he gives the analogy that we are like God's handiwork. Like an artist, in many ways, through his warning and through his judgment, he's shaping and crafting us into something perfect and beautiful. Lewis says this, Over a sketch made idly to amuse a child, an artist may not take much trouble. He may be content to let it go, even though it is not exactly as he meant it to be. But over the great picture of his life, the work which he loves, though in a different fashion, as intensely as a man loves a woman or a mother a child, he will take endless trouble and would doubtless thereby give endless trouble to the picture if it were alive. One can imagine an alive picture, a living picture, after being rubbed and scraped and recommenced for the tenth time, wishing that it were only a thumbnail sketch whose making was over in a minute. In the same way, it's natural for us to wish that God designed us for a less glorious and a less arduous destiny. But then we are wishing not for more love, but for less You see, if you push back against this picture of a God who's reforming us and shaping us, an an understanding of this as loving God, then you really don't want a loving God at all. You see, we all know love isn't so shallow as to always be comfortable and easy, right? What you're saying is what you want is a God who's indifferent to what's going on in your life. He doesn't care whether you develop into a good or a loving being or a flourishing being. He just wants you to always have a good time. doesn't matter what happens to you, but you just always want to be happy. And how on earth is everyone just going to be happy if we're beating the snot out of each other, if we're not being formed into loving, caring, good beings? If you long to know the true loving God, don't ignore his judgment. Instead, we need to submit. When judgment enters your life, submit to it. Now, that's another word that's not really hot in our culture. Um, But really, it's one of the most courageous things you can do in your entire life. You have to submit to God's opinion of you and trust him with your failure. You see, our natural reaction to judgment isn't to submit, but it's rather to fight God's judgment or to run away from it, right? Um, And we have a vivid example on how Judah, if you looked in 2 Kings 25, does exactly that. First, the king Zedekiah at the time The king, he he chooses to rebel against the most major political power, Babylon. And in this process, he finds himself in battle on all fronts with Babylon. And the prophet Jeremiah, he comes to Zedekiah and he says in chapter 21, Hey, God's not on your side anymore. He's not fighting for you because you've given your whole life and the whole city to idols that are destroying your community. Why would God long to, to allow this community to prosper? It's destroying his good world. He's fighting against you, so you need to surrender if you want to save your life. Well, Zedekiah, what does he do? Instead of submit to God's judgment, he fights. He fights against it. And like a bird in a cage, the army of Babylon surrounds him in Jerusalem, and he tries to escape. And he's captured His family is murdered before his eyes. It's a gruesome scene. Then his eyes are poked out. This is the last thing he sees in his whole life. And he's carried away in chains. 
to Babylon. He tried to fight against God's judgment, and he lost. But there are others in this same story in 2 Kings 25 that when Israel was on the brink of utter destruction, instead of submitting and surrendering to Babylon, as Jeremiah, as the voice box of God, had told the city to do, they ran back to Egypt, which is the most abominable movement because God had redeemed them out of slavery from Egypt, but they go back and they sell themselves to be slaves in Egypt as a refuge rather than being slaves to Babylon, as God had instructed them. And if you look in Deuteronomy, God had promised this. If you disregard me, this is what's going to happen. He says, And the Lord will bring you back in ships to Egypt, a journey that I promised that you should never make again. And there you shall offer yourselves, offer yourselves for sale to your enemies as male and female slaves, but there will be no buyer. They tried to run away from God's judgment, but failed. The reason we ignore God's warnings is because we don't believe Him, or at least don't think they're going to happen to us. The reason we don't submit or believe God's judgments is because we don't believe we deserve them. The hardest part to come to terms with this is that we deserve God's rejection just as much as Judah and Israel did. And rather than submit to God's declaration of who we are, we get angry. We begin to blame shift. It's their fault. It's not my fault. We begin to justify ourselves. It wasn't that bad. Or we begin to fight against God. Or we run away. Just like Adam and Eve did in the garden after they ignored God's warnings. But unless you believe you do deserve God's judgment, you can never experience his salvation, his rescue. You see... What's so astounding about the story of the fallen nation of Israel is that they are not exiled forever. They are not annihilated like some of these other nations that happen within the storyline of Scripture. But after they've gained these scars from stumbling down the stairs of destruction, they return. And next week we're going to begin our journey in the book of Nehemiah where we see this remnant, this small group of Judah that returns. But it's only a few why? Because they never really got the judgment. And so they can never really get the rescue. Well, similarly, we have to realize and see that we deserve judgment. That we're in the wrong, that we've disregarded God's warnings so much in our life. And if we're ever able to accept his mercy that flows from Jesus Christ, we must submit. You see, Christ, when he became human, he became the ultimate exile. Right? When he became human, he went to the most gruesome form of death and took our judgment upon himself on the cross, crying out in the most brutal of deaths, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Exile. So that we might mercifully be restored to our Heavenly Father. You see, the cross is where judgment and mercy meet. Christ taking our judgment and giving us mercy. If you can see the judgment you deserve there, you can receive the mercy available there. The, first has to, the, the judgment piece has to come first. And it transforms all of our understandings of judgment into love because we see what God did in behalf and for us because of what we deserved. Here at the cross, you can, le- you can learn to trust God's plan even when it's hard. 
At the cross, you can trust God's judgment even when it hurts. And at the cross, you can trust that he loves you even when you cannot sense it. Friends, don't ignore God's warnings. And when it comes, don't ignore God's judgment. Because if we do, you'll never get to see his rescue. Let's pray. Our Father, we come to you in prayer this morning again. This is a weighty sermon. Um, it feels a little more intense, man, than other Sundays as we hear this deep truth that we cannot avoid, that we cannot step aside, but we must follow if we hold to the whole teachings of your word, the depths of your judgment. And when we dig into it, oh, the beauty actually of your love as you're reforming us to be the people you've created us to be, how you do it out of love, like a good parent trains up his or her child. hearts submit to you. May our ears hear you. And may we find such beautiful grace in the cross of Christ when we come to understand the greater depths of who you are. In Jesus' name.